Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of thehorse.com. Tonight our topic is PPID, Early Signs, Diagnosis and Treatment, brought to you by our sponsor, Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica, maker of Percent. At the end of this month, my good friend Laura is facing the tough decision we horse owners all dread. She's having her Morgan Mayer Bell euthanized before winter sets in. Uh, Laura has owned Bell for nearly 25 years. She won a world championship for her uh, when they were both much younger than they are now. But for the past five years or so, Bell has suffered from pituitary uh, pars intermediate dysfunction, also known as PPID or commonly is equine Cushing's. And along with PPID, she suffered from the painful laminitis that's associated with it. Over the last few years, I've watched Laura, her veterinarian and farrier, as they work together to help keep Belle comfortable. Uh, this mayor is special to me as well because she was part of the therapeutic riding herd that I managed. Laura has gone above and beyond to give her mayor a happy retirement. Tonight we're going to be talking about these horses with PPID, and I imagine many of you who are listening are like my friend Laura, and you're looking for ways to help keep your horse with PPID comfortable, or you might be suspecting that your horse has Cushing's. To answer your questions about this disease, we're, designed, we're joined tonight by Dr. Janice Krzyzewski of Purdue and Dr. Steve Grubbs of BIA. Welcome, doctors. Uh, thank you. Welcome thank as well. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Krzyzewski. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience treating horses with PPID? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. I've um, been on the faculty at Purdue University um, for quite a few years and, and see horses that have medical problems. And uh, pituitary tumors are the most common endocrine problem of horses, so um, I've been treating this problem in one form or another since the mid-80s when I came here. Um, and as I said, it's um, our understanding of the disease and, and treatment have changed a lot, but um, it's still a very common problem in, in the horses that we see here. And Dr. Grubbs, uh, what has your experience been helping with the management of horses with Cushing's? Okay. Um, you know, originally it, it, it began in, in uh, private practice, and that was really prior to, I guess, a lot of the, you know, the, the newer treatments that we have today. Um, and then, you know, it was a bit frustrating then. And not also the treatments, but just the overall knowledge base and awareness that we have of PPID. And, you know, over the last few years, you know, there's just been a tremendous, tremendous amount of an increased knowledge base and awareness. And so with that, uh, it's just been, you know, it's been, you know, fantastic to be kind of a, a part and be, to be involved in, in uh, you know, watching and just be, be really being a part of, of how these, uh, of learning more about these horses. This event is an hour long. We're going to be answering questions that were sent in ahead of time by those of you who, um, when you registered, submitted questions. You can also, if you're listening live, submit questions as we go into your console on your computer. If you're looking for more information about PPID, uh, we've the editors at the Horse have collected uh, some resources that, that we think you'll find 
useful. And those are at thehorse.com slash 33452. Again, that's thehorse.com slash 33452. And you can take a look at those. Uh, there, there's some great things there that will give you a great overview of PPID. In the meantime, we have a ton of questions to get through. So let's go ahead and get started with the questions that were submitted uh, ahead of time. Dr. Grubbs, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we have a question that's from Kathy in Orfino, Idaho, uh, as well as a question, well, I'll start with Kathy. So Kathy wants to know what the early signs and average age of onset is for PPID. We also got a question from Tamara in Michigan, and she said that in her 20-year-old stock horse gelding, he has a tendency to develop a crusty neck and fat deposits on his croup, and she wants to know if that could be an early sign of PPID or maybe it's insulin resistant. So if you could address both of those questions, please, Dr. Grubbs. Okay, and I think we'll probably separate those just a little bit, but there may be some overlap. And the first question about the early signs, and you know, it's really a, a, a good thought there because we do have what's kind of been classified as early signs and advanced signs. And we look at the early, the early signs. We're really thinking, uh, you know, some of the things: decreased athletic performance, and maybe you know, some some bit of a change in. in uh, attitude, uh, these horses may be a little bit more lethargic. And when you think about those two things, that could be a lot of different uh, issue, you know, with a different other problems with a horse. But when you see those two, and then if you have, you know, some of the others, you know, it kind of puts PPID on the list of differentials in some of these when you're thinking about the early, the early case. You know, another thing is delayed hair coat shedding. And a lot of times that's, if you have other horses, it may be the delayed hair coat shedding. Um, in relationship to your other horses. So that's one thing. And there's a term uh, called regional hypertrichosis. And, and really what we're talking about there is you have a bit longer hair regionally, meaning maybe it's just in part of the neck, you'll see that they shed off everywhere else. But in that part of the neck, you may have a little bit longer hair. Sometimes that's along you know, along the bottom of the neck, right around where the juggler groove is. Sometimes it's on the side of the horse, and sometimes you look at these horses, and if it's mostly on the side or around the kind of the barrel of the top of the horse, those horses may even look a little bit of different color. So it's kind of regional. It's not all over like these advanced horses that kind of look like that woolly mammoth sort of thing. So we're talking about regionally. It's some of the early things you may see. Um, and then in the second question, um, you talked about fat deposits on his croup and then the crusty neck. And that's part of what's kind of called regional adiposity. That can be sometimes tendency of a, an early sign, but that can also be seen you know, later on in the disease also. Laminitis is another one that could be part of an early sign. But now when we get to this, uh, this other horse, it's a 20-year-old stock horse, this gilding. Uh, when you look at this, it's a 20-year-old horse, and we've got a crusty neck and fat deposits, you know, like I said, on this croup. And, you know, with that neck that's a little bit bigger, and the question is, could it be PPID or insulin resistance? And if you look at that horse that's 20, you know, I'm thinking the answer to that question, you know, real quick and a short answer would be yes, uh, meaning it could be both, okay? Uh, and that's, or, and I say both, meaning that horse could, uh, typically the insulin resistant horse, if we want to term that an equine metabolic syndrome, those horses tend to maybe characteristically 
as a group, they're a little younger age in the horse when that starts to manifest it, manifest itself. And then as these horses age, some of these horses are more prone to either um, become PPID, not all, but maybe some. And now that this horse is 20, uh, one of the recommendations in these horses, if um, with the insulin resistance, the EMS, once they hit that 10 year of age, maybe it's something for these horses to start looking for PPID as far as diagnostically testing. But specifically with this horse, uh, the answer could be it could be a PPID horse, absolutely. Whether it started with insulin resistance or the EMS, I don't know because we don't really have any more history than that. But I guess looking at this horse specifically, uh, I would definitely uh, think about looking at uh, the diagnostics, speak to your veterinarian and look for diagnostics for PPID and also check, you know, insulin levels, you know, and the glucose levels. So I would probably look for both in this horse because it's not uncommon uh, to have both, you know, especially when you get to that 20, 25 year old horse. Uh, some of these PPID horses will also have issues with insulin. So Dr. Grubbs, I've had a couple horses that I've managed uh, that ended up with PPID and in retrospect I could see the clinical signs. Um, I didn't necessarily recognize them as they were happening. If we are aware of the clinical signs early on, can our horses, uh, is the outcome possibly better for them or the long-term management better for the horse if we can intervene earlier in the disease? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's another good question and like we said earlier there's a lot of research and there's been a lot of research and it's been amazing over the last four or five years but I think that's a question that um, we'd like to look at some long-term studies to understand that I think common sense tells us and we'd like to think yes uh, because if we can manage these horses because if we have insulin issues and we recognize that secondarily to PPID and I think you're specifically speaking of PPID we can, you know, we can manage diets, and if we can get these horses on treatment earlier, uh, you know, the hope would be that, you know, that we keep these horses on a lower dose for a longer period of time, and keep these horses, um, you know, very active, okay, and and try and, uh, you know, keep down some of these clinical signs, or at least control them at a, you know, at an earlier, you know, an earlier time point, and so, you know, we're able to manage these horses, and then hopefully we'll be able to use these horses. Uh, you know, efficiently, uh, you know, for a much longer period of time. Dr. Krzyzewski, yes. we, have, have, we have a question from our live audience. Roy wants to know if, if we see psychological, mental, or behavioral changes on, at the onset of PPID. Um, well, I think as Dr. Gross was just alluding to, and you, you also, um, most of the time, the onset of PPID is very slow, um, and many people, once the horse is your classic, really fuzzy, poor, top-line type animal, you look, think back and go, oh yeah, there were, you know, there's a couple years there he shed out later, or, you know, just I, a lot of times what people attribute as old age changes and the horse slowing down because of old age, um, when they it's actually more that they're starting the first signs of the disease. Um, 
one of the hormones that becomes abnormal with this disease is um, the type of hormone that can cause like the kind of the natural opiates so horses can act kind of sedated sometimes or be very calm and um, I wouldn't say that's an early change um, necessarily but um, sometimes they do seem just slower and again many times people attribute that to aging changes and not to the disease but then once they start treating it um, they, they get their old horse back and so they realize that it was actually not just being old but because they had the PPID. Um, so, so we had, oh I'm sorry, go ahead. I would say like, um, like bad behavior per se is really not a big feature. Okay, so we had a couple more kind of behavior related questions uh, about PPID and Carol in Indiana wanted to know if fatigue from light exercise is a symptom and if yes if there's anything she can do to help her horse and then Susan in Montana wanted to know if a change where the horse starts becoming aggressive when she's never been aggressive before could be a sign of PPID or yeah. result from the PPID. Um, again, being aggressive really isn't a, a, a really well-recognized feature of the syndrome. Um, I'd say anytime a horse has any kind of sudden change in their personality, um, probably should have your veterinarian take a look at it and make sure that that change isn't because of pain somewhere, because that can kind of make horses that were, you know, pleasant, you know, kind of sour if they're in pain. Um, certainly with the exercise intolerance, again, um, horses with PPID lose some muscle mass, and um, so that that may be part of the syndrome. But I'd want to make sure there wasn't another problem. Um, perhaps that's that's there as well, um, because there certainly are horses um, that don't seem to you know that's again not as it's not that it's unheard of but it's not a real common way that people first notice their horse has it. So, Dr. Krzyzewski, we have a question from Peggy in Illinois, and she wants to know if Cushing's follows a certain genetic line. She said that she had a mare with Cushing's, and now the son has it also. Um, and she also wants to know if it's more prevalent in certain breeds. Um, yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, there's um, So th this is kind of what we know. Um, there do seem to be lines of horses that have more Cushing's than others, and certainly I know people that have um, mares and their sons or daughters all seem to get PPID and get it at maybe an earlier age than many other horses typically do. So there, there does seem to be a genetic component of some sort, just what we call anecdotally. Like, you know, people say, oh yeah, like I can think of one horse. There haven't been enough of them to do any kind of real research study to say it any more, any, any more clearly than that. Um, when you look at the horses with this, um, there are ponies are overrepresented, Morgans are overrepresented, and Arabians are often overrepresented. Um, and again, um, th there is some evidence that the ponies get the signs at an earlier age than large horses. Um, but by and large, the horses that just tend to live to be very old are the ones where you see this disease in. You'd, we don't see a lot of it in draft horses, but we don't see many 28-year-old draft horses either. So, you know, that who knows, like, if it's because there's a true um, breed disposition or just that some breeds 
not enough of them live long enough for it to become common. And again, I'm not sure we really know that. That's a really interesting point. If several of the horses, or a couple of the horses that I know that have had it were Arabians, and so I've kind of always associated it with Arabs, but when I think about it, they were extremely old Arabians and maybe older <laughs> than other horses that, that I was managing at the time. So that, that's really interesting. Well, uh, yeah, Dr. that we don't know yet which one of those is, you know, the, the bigger factor. Uh, Dr. Grabbins, we have a question from you from Carol in Pasadena, uh, Maryland, and she wants to. She has a paint horse mare that's 17 and is a profuse sweater. She requires clipping because she sweats so much, and her co coat is slightly heavier than average. Uh, should Carol be worried about PPID? Okay, it's a good, it's really a good observation that you know that she's made, and when you when you look at the sweating and you look at the I want to assume something here, but not necessarily that her coat is slightly heavier than average. So I'm want to take that as average to maybe herd mates or or horses right around her area. And so when you look at those two things, um, I'm, I'm thinking that we've got some delayed shedding there because we've got you know a longer hair coat, and then this horse uh, due to the increased sweating, and we've got whether you call it abnormal sweating or whichever, we actually um, are kind of right in the middle of it, but we've had a study going on for uh, possibly over two years, uh, enrolling horses, looking at just what are the clinical signs that we're uh, at initial diagnosis of these horses, and she picked out the top two clinical signs that were the most, as far as predictors, to be PPID positive. And the top two predictors in that was first was abnormal sweating, and the second was delayed shedding. And that was 500 and some horses that you know that we looked at with all the clinical signs, and those were actually the top two. So, I guess to answer her question, could she have PPID? And I think the answer would be, you know, that's probably a horse that you would want to get your veterinarian out to go ahead and, and uh, to, to go ahead and test and take a look at and uh, you know see where you are from there uh, but I, I think that's a it's definitely the clinical signs that you know that we saw that were the highest predictors so I would definitely have your veterinarian come out. Dr. Krzyzewski we have a question from our live audience it's from Karen um, and she wants to know if there is such a high incidence of PPID in older horses and it's difficult to diagnose early then is there a downside to proactively treating older horses with pergolide and would doing so help prevent or slow the disease progression and allow them a longer and higher quality of life? Um, well um it, there, I, first of all, there is a higher incidence, but um, it's not like all of them. So um, there really, as far as anybody knows, isn't a downside to doing that except to your pocketbook. Um, but um, there, and there are some thoughts that keeping the pituitary um, hormones in check, if you will, with the pergolide may prevent um, the pituitary from getting larger. So um, there are some, you know, thoughts that that might be more helpful. Um, again, no one knows for sure yet, but um, it, it shouldn't hurt the horse. Um, again, the horse just um, may not need it, but, but um, 
it's it's a safe, very safe product. So let's talk a little bit about uh, diagnosing the disease because I I went through the process with a couple horses um, probably five six years ago and I don't know if there have been changes since then on how how they're tested but I remember it being very confusing and complicated so uh, <laughs> doctor <laughs> oh you laugh <laughs> yeah um, so maybe I'm not the only one who thinks that so uh, let's go over to Dr. Grubbs because we do have a live question from Jennifer in our audience who wants to know how do you test for PPID and do you have to test to start treatment, and can you explain what the treatment would be? So, Dr. Grubbs. Okay, you may have to remind me. There's three parts to that. Okay. Um, give me the first one again. Okay. So, first how do you? We'll go to treatment. Okay. How, how do you? How, how, do you, how do you test for it? Yeah. Okay. And there, there's actually a couple of different ways, but there's there's probably some preferred ways and easier. Um, you know, testing is as simple as as um, if you're out. If a veterinarian comes out and they're looking at the horse, there's not really anything that needs to be done except pulling a blood sample. And they're they're going to pull a blood sample, send it off to you know the laboratory their laboratory their choice, and they're measuring just resting ACTH. Okay, and they're and the good thing about resting ACTH is you can use it all year long, as long as you use a laboratory that has values during the fall period. And when fall period, if you may hear that a little bit during this conversation. We're typically talking about August, September, and October. And with that test, you can use it all year long. It's just the, the normal values change a little bit. They increase a little bit during those fall values. So it's a, you know, it's a very simple test and um, you know, something easily that, that can be done. So my memory of it being more difficult, has it changed during that time frame? Okay, and as far as that, yes, because to be honest, um, you know, I said back, you know, when I was first when I was in practice looking at these horses, you know, we used another diagnostic test. It's still used, you know, still used today. Uh, it's called the dexamethasone suppression test. There, there's a list of tests that can be done, but those are probably the two most common. And the dexamethasone suppression test, you know, is a very good, you know, it's still, um, you know, fairly equal to the ACTH. But the, the difficulty in, in that one is that you have to, to give the, the horse say, a shot of something the night before, and then you show up the next morning and, and pull some blood, okay? And then you send that blood off, and then you look at, you know, you look at the results there. So there's, you know, there could be two trips involved, and that's a test that we typically don't use in August, September, and October. So there might be a little bit of limitations there. There is some, you know, advantages, maybe disadvantages, you know, with with the dexamethasone suppression. But, you know, with the resting ACTH, it's easy. Uh, it's you know fairly inexpensive, and you can use it year long. And if I can just add, if um, yep. uh, a horse has the more advanced disease and has the long shaggy hair coat. Um, that right there pretty much tells you that it has it. Um, there's still a reason to do the blood test so that you can monitor treatment and see how your horse is responding and whether you have the right dose of drug and that sort of thing. But to just say whether or not the horse has it, that long shaggy hair coat um, is as sensitive as, as a blood test. Okay. So the next part of Jennifer's question, Dr. Grubbs, was uh, when do you start treatment, and can you start treatment without 
doing the testing. Okay. And what is the treatment? And, okay. And I want to back up one part to that first question about diagnosing. It is easy, it is easier to diagnose, but one thing you know that we've tried to discuss more and more and more is yes, we're measuring ACTH, but we want to look at the rest of the horse. And then also, you know, we said earlier in the you know in this broadcast that uh, some of these horses have insulin issues too in the PPID. So probably at a bare minimum, you know, we, it, it's always good if we can to be as complete as possible, and it's not that much more expensive to look at the insulin levels in this horse and the glucose. So we've kind of covered a lot of bases. So if we need to manage the diet or change something, we can kind of do that effectively with all that information. Now back to your the treatment, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, when do you start? You know, when can you start treatment? I mean. You know, once with you know with diagnosis, you know, we we typically use history. You know, and the clinical signs we see, and then if indeed, you know, it's like Dr. K had had mentioned. You know, if it's a long uh, shaggy hair coat, we may not need to to do the diagnosis, and then you know we can possibly start that horse on treatment, and then look at clinical response. You know, from that from that point on, and if we do have a a horse that's been uh, diagnosed. You know, with actually with one of the with the testing procedures such as ACTH, uh, we get those results back. Yes, you can go ahead and start that horse on treatment, and then if you want to, either way, whether you do the blood test or not, you want to look at the horse and see how it's responding to the dosage that you're actually administering that horse. And regardless of the blood work, you, you know, we want to look at the horse. Don't forget the horse. Don't just look at the blood work. And so. Uh, because sometimes blood work may not change much, but the horse will, will dramatically improve. So you'll see a lot of improvement that way. So then that kind of gets another conversation that I won't get into at the end of this question. But, uh, but so yes, you can uh, go ahead and start if you've got the clinical signs and then start monitoring, you know, what level of, you know, drug do they need more? Are they doing very well on the dosage that they've been started with? Uh, you know, based on their clinical response, uh, you know, as the veterinarian comes back and as as the owner themselves start looking at this horse, because you know you should start seeing some noticeable differences in these horses following treatment. So, uh, Dr. Grubbs, we have a question from the live audience from Sandra. Uh, she said that she has, um, uh, she won't, she wants to know. Um, and actually, maybe Dr. Kravinsky wants to jump in on this, but. Other than Percent, are there any specific supplements or other treatments that can help these horses? And are there any feeds that should not be given to a horse, in, horse with Cushing's? Well, I can jump in, I guess. Um, there, first of all, the, the, the short, easy answer is no. The only drug labeled for treatment is Percent. Um, however, these guys, they tend to be old. They tend to be, I guess, a little bit fragile, if you will. Their immune systems maybe aren't as what they should be. Um, and so they need just general, overall, really good husbandry and care. They need you know, good quality diet and um, a lot of attention paid to just their overall um, well-being. Um, it, it is important to know if they also have the insulin problems or insulin resistance because um, that is the thing that predisposes the horses to laminitis and laminitis is the um, 
is really the the worst um, side effect, if you will, or consequence of having the disease. If they do have insulin problems, then it's important to feed a lower carbohydrate diet so that um, they you try and keep their blood insulin as low as as possible so it's in the normal ranges. Um, in terms of like an herbal supplement, um, there are some that people talk about. Um, there has been none, unfortunately, that have been looked at that actually help very much. Um, and there's not a ton of studies, but the ones that have been done haven't really been very encouraging about having something um, that takes the place of the of an actual drug. Dr. Grubbs, we have a question from the live audience, and this is from Terry, and she has a horse that was diagnosed with PPID in late July and has been started on treatment. Uh, she wants to know if this time, well, she said she understands that this time of year levels are elevated, um, but she wants to know if her horse should be retested now. Is there any reason to do that? Okay, and that kind of started in July, started treatment in July we're already we're into September we're right in the middle of the fall period and I guess back to the to kind of the, the one of the basic rules of thumb when we start these if we want to first thing I would ask uh, you know is is how's the horse doing clinically I mean does the horse look better does it act like it feels better does some of the clinical signs you know seem to be improving because one of the first things you'll see is these horses just feel better uh, they seem to act better. Uh, they move about a little bit better. If it was, you know, some of the issues with uh, decreased shedding, sometimes that may take a little bit longer. It depends on the severity of that, but that can take a little bit longer. But that's the first question I would ask. And then, you know, with the testing, um, you could, uh, because typically what we'll say, and I'm going to come back and contradict myself right here because we are in the fall time period. Uh, but typically, if somebody wants to, to retest a horse, you can do it as quick as, you know, typically the rule of thumb is 30 days from the first day they started, you know, the, the dosage of uh, that they were dosed with the drug. So 30 days from there, you can go ahead and test and kind of see where you are um, diagnostically wise. But there again, you know, how's the horse doing? Uh, if it's this time of the year, you can, but you would definitely need to look at um, you would need to look at the fall values, but if you had a July value and that's in the kind of the other nine months of the year, uh, you might be comparing apples to oranges because that horse may have elevated at this point just because it's in the fall time period. And so, you know, to make a comparison back to the July value, you know, you might be looking at, um, you know, the November, late November, December time period to make that comparison. You could do it now but I wouldn't compare backwards to that value because that horse may not have been in the fall time period with that increased value. It might even go up a little bit right now. I don't know what the value was. And so I wouldn't get that alarmed as long as it's, you know, somewhere, you know, getting closer to around what we consider normal for this time of the year. So I guess basic recommendation if you do, don't make a comparison back to the July value. Hope that Dr. K, thank you. Uh, we've, we're getting several questions in now about um, metabolic syndrome and its relationship to, uh, to PPID. Um, but can we talk a little bit about the relationship to laminitis? Sure. Why these horses become laminitis and how that is so closely associated with PPID? So, um, horses 
nobody knows why, but there are some horses that get PPID that never have insulin problems and never develop laminitis. And there are others that the very first symptom they show, the very first time the owner knows there's any problem at all, is when the horse has an acute flare-up of laminitis with no predisposing cause. And then when they go and try and figure out why that horse did that, they find out that they have had an endocrine problem. Um, the laminitis is really tied to the insulin. So if you had a horse with PPID that you could test and the insulin was normal, chances are that horse, as long as the insulin stayed normal, would not be at risk of foundering. Why laminitis is associated with high insulin is still an open question. So unfortunately, I can't tell you why that is. But the more people look at the relationship, the more insulin levels are really seem to be tied into the development of laminitis in horses. Um, so because a, a big percent of horses with PPID also have insulin um, problems, that's why we recommend they be tested. Because um, a lot of horses, the very first time an owner knows there's anything going on is when he all of a sudden is um, affected with acute laminitis. So um, that's a reason to, to take it, you know, the disease very seriously. But um, that the relationship with PPID and laminitis is kind of um, really more of an insulin problem, and the PPID plus insulin makes that horse at risk, whereas PPID without high insulin probably not nearly as much. So we have a follow-up question from the live audience. Uh, Angela wants to know if a horse can have Cushing's and not develop laminitis. Yes, many, many do. There, there are many horses that have Cushing's and never develop the laminitis. Is that because of management and drug intervention, or is it just... Um, that would be nice, because then we could prevent it, but unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of them... Um, are insulin resistant and we absolutely don't know yet why some go on and do that and some don't. Um, and so it, it it's an area of like ongoing investigation. Um, you know, we've been studying laminitis ever since I've been a veterinarian um, and we still don't know most of the answers. So it's just a hard nut to crack. But, um, you know, why some PPID horses have it and some don't. Um, I don't think anybody knows that, but certainly there are enough horses with PPD, PPID have it that it, if you knew your horse had that, you'd definitely want to make sure he didn't have lamp, the insulin resistance too, because that's a horse that's at very high risk for getting laminitis. Okay. Uh, Dr. Grubbs, we've talked about uh, both percent and use the, the word pergolide. Can you explain a little bit about the relationship between that trade name and and the so that people who aren't familiar with them can understand that? I mean how we okay. Uh, sure. As far as percent, um, percent is actually um, you know it's just it's it's basically the you know the trade name of the of the drug, you know, I mean of the product itself and you know the product is is for the treatment or the control of you know clinical signs associated with PPID in horses, and then the active uh, drug in the uh, 
you know, in that product is pergolide. And then they'll also see something called pergolide mesylate. And that's just nothing more than, you know, that's kind of a salt or something else. That's a chemist's way of saying it, but the active drug is, is actually pergolide. And that's what, you know, results, you know, once you, uh, you know, if you treat a horse with the trade name drug Persend, it's got the active product pergolide, which actually is the drug that has the effect to, you know, to control the clinical signs of PPID. And Persend is the FDA approved um, drug That's correct. for treating horses. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so we have uh, a question from Gail in the live audience and she wants to know about the possible side effects of, of Persend. Um, can it cause weight loss in a horse? And actually Sandra also has a question about side effects. She wants to know if it can cause horses to stop sweating. So are there any listed side effects uh, of the drug that people should be looking for as they're treating? Okay, and I think if you, um, first of all, just talk about, you know, the product and, of course, you know, percent itself has went through the safety and efficacy studies and all those things to, to you know, to get an FDA approval. So, you know, those things are very controlled and everything's watched and looked at and recorded and tabulated at the end and reported. And if you look at a label or if you, if you have percent yourself, you can open up the box and pull out the actual label, it has a lot of the studies in there, um, you know, summarized and, you know, that's all approved by the FDA, all the wording and everything and is taken out of there. So it has a lot of these things listed. But when you look at the, you know, if somebody said, you know, what's one side effect? And I think it's with, you know, we talk about percent, we talk about pergolide, uh, you know, probably if somebody calls, if somebody says, if somebody's going to call you and ask you, you know, a question, what's it, you know, something going to be, sometimes these horses initially will go off, you know, their their appetite will decrease once they, you know, once they take the product. And, um, you know, when you do that, you know, the recommendation is typically um, you can decrease the dosage a little bit and see if they'll work through it. A lot of times we'll just take them off of it and then, um, you know, start them back on the product once they uh, go back on feed and they do and they, you know, most of these horses do really, really well. You know, after that, sometimes people will put them on a lower dose and then increase it to get them used to the, you know, used to the product. So, you know, that's probably one that, you know, that we, you know, that we hear about. You know, if you want to look at the, you know, the label itself, you know, side effects, um, you know, other things. To, you know, there's when we think about that, I think of um, precautions. And if you look at anything. We'll say tr treatment percent may cause, you know, like we say, loss of appetite a little bit. Most cases of these are pretty mild, but you may see some, you may see some weight loss. Um, and then even on the label, I think it says something like you may see a lack of energy or sometimes behavioral changes. And most of the time, we think of those behavioral changes as uh, I think Dr. K said at these horses sometimes if they before treatment, if they have PPID, they may act a little bit not druggy, but they have that increased opioid kind of response and they're just a little bit, I wouldn't say sedate, but, the, but then they feel better. And I think sometimes we think behavioral change, these horses will feel better. And they do. And sometimes we, you know, when we officially launched this product a few years ago, you know, I always told people these horses will, you know, tend to feel better typically. And if they were the, you know, the grandkids horse and they, you know, you could put four kids on it and walk it around and not even pay attention. These horses get feeling better. You might start paying attention because you know they might, you know, 
a little bit better, you might not want to have four grandkids on it. You know, you put one. So, you know, when we look at that. Uh, but yes, you know, weight loss has, has been one that, you know, we've actually seen. And in some of these horses, it kind of depends if they're an EMS horse and they're overweight. You know, you kind of look at, you know, maybe what that would be. Uh, and one thing, you know, that I, I kind of will point out that, you know, as far as, you know, at, at this point, we really hadn't evaluated this this product and, you know, in breeding these pregnant or, uh, you know, mares that are lactating. So we don't really know. There, there's some uh, some evidence back that there may be some, uh, you know, evidence that, you know, it may interfere the way this drug works with lactation. So, you know, if you have a mare like this, you know, speak to your veterinarian. You know, I think that's, you know, that's something there. Um, trying to think of any other things. Um, but that's, you know, that's typically... I think I, I tried to address the question she had, but probably if somebody, you know, calls in and, you know, has a question, it's when they, if they start out on this product, you know, probably the the biggest call we'll get. We don't, you know, not all horses, but, you know, sometimes that, that'll happen that, that they'll, uh, their feed increase will decrease just a little bit, or their feed intake will decrease. But uh, it comes back. Dr. K, we have a question about... Um, the, about using compounded pergolide. What are some of the concerns of using a compounded drug that isn't FDA approved for, for treatment um, of PID horses? Well, I guess the, the main concerns are is that the um, co compounding pharmacies aren't held to the same standards as, you know, to be an FDA approved place. And so, um, it's really um, kind of buyer beware. There um, are some compounding pharmacies that take pride in doing things well, and um, they probably do them almost as well as uh, non-compounded things. I, I'm sure they don't do it 100%, but they, they at least they try. There's others that are basically out to make a quick buck. And um, when you go and look at the product they have on their label, they have different amounts and or not even any that's active. And um, there's, you know, so that is all on the owner to try and sort that all out, you know, where, what you can believe and what you can't. And so um, it's not, <clears throat> you know, so... That's kind of where you are with them. Um, there is really the place I think there's a role for compounded pharmacies or compounded products are products that are not available, uh, you know, that are not on the market labels for animals um, for whatever reason. And um, some of that's economic, and some of it, um, you know, there might be other reasons. And then you're stuck; you have no choice. But certainly, if there's a FDA-approved drug. Um, you know, we, we say to use that and not to use a compounded product. Um, so that's my, I guess, two cents. Um, we have a question for Dr. Grubbs from the live audience. Uh, Sharon says that she has a horse that has a long hair coat, but they've done two blood tests that have come back negative for PPID. She wants to know if she should keep testing and or if she should just start treating him without a positive test. Okay. Um, you know, I, I would probably have a, a couple of 
questions for her, and I hate this to do this, but I think I will because then she can pass these on, you know, to her, you know, to her veterinarian because that, you know, that's probably one. But let's go ahead and discuss it, and then she can, uh, like I said, pass this on to her veterinarian. Those couple of questions, uh, you know, to kind of look at one. They've obviously, you know, tested the horse, so we're not talking about a two-year-old horse with, for some reason, long hair. So it probably, you know, everything fits the bill. And so, as Dr. K had said earlier, you know, sometimes, um, you know, if your veterinarian is, you know, is pretty sure looking at that, you're not going to create any issues by treating this horse. And so, uh, that is that is definitely an option. Now, the one thing I'll I'll let you know when once you do that, um, um, then if you want to test the horse, you know, later on. You might not have a lot to compare it to. You may just have to uh, to see if the product is working. You're going to look strictly at the clinical signs, which we need to do that anyway. Uh, I would ask, you know, probably another question is, what time of year did you actually test that horse, and did you use arresting ACTH? And if you did, if you just pulled one blood sample and didn't give the horse anything and sent it off, um, if you did that, say in the springtime, sometimes the sensitivity of that test it, it's not perfect. Not 100% saying you know every time a horse has PPID that it will identify it. You know probably we're going to hit somewhere between 70 and 80% of those cases. You know during the nine months of the year when we're not in the fall time period, um, we're right in the middle of the fall time period now. I don't know when you tested at that time, but if you didn't test it during this period, I would test that horse now if you wanted a positive diagnosis and you wanted to use the diagnostics. You know in September. Uh, because a lot of those horses are normal. The other times of the year, those PPID horses actually really increase during this time period. So, you know, that's something I would, uh, you know, think about. There's other ways to, you know, to, to look at this horse. If you really feel like you want a diagnostic test, there's, I don't know if we'll discuss this later, if I discuss it now, but I think to answer your question, uh, you sure could, and go ahead and treat the horse. Just look at clinical response. If it's long hair, it may take longer than a month, like we said. You know, it could take, you know, sometimes two to six months to get this horse. Uh, but you should start seeing some improvement. But if you wanted a diagnostic test uh, and you tested it the other months of the year, I do it right now, or at least think about it. Speak to your veterinarian about doing it. Um, Dr. K, our next question is for you, and it's related. It's from Sandra, and she wants to know if there are any ever any false positives from the blood test. Um, there can be. Um, so the ACTH, which is the hormone that the horse makes um, that we test for PPID, is a stress hormone. It's what tells the body to make more cortisol. And so if you test a horse when it is, ha like um, the best example is if you test the ACTH of a horse that is just broken with very painful laminitis, Sometimes the ACTH will be really high because that horse is so stressed and in so much pain. Um, and if you um, had a horse that had some other severe disease, um, it, the ACTH may be high because it's reacting to that. So um, if you tested a horse that was not in pain and was healthy, there'd be very, very few false positives. But um, sometimes when you you know, the first time you even think about doing this is when that horse has its first flare-up or first infection, um, something along those lines. Um, if they're tested right at that time point, they may test very high. 
and if you let that, um, you know, the horse become a little more comfortable, a little more stable, sometimes the values go back to normal. Um, Dr. Grubbs, our next question is for you. Earlier we were talking about breeds in relation to PPID, uh, but Ricky in Virginia wants to know if it's more prevalent in geldings than in mares or stallions. Okay, and you know, it's just, let me back up just a second to answer that question. I, I spoke of a study along we have going on now, and the first 500 and some horses we had in there, um, we didn't really see a difference in that, okay? But that's only 500 horses. We're trying to add more and more and more, so we're hoping we'll have at least three times that many or more to kind of look at. So we didn't see it there. If you look in the literature, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of people that's practiced and, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing, but it, it kind of bounces back and forth. But if you look in the literature, I only know of about reports where they felt like, at least in that study of horses, that gildings may be. But I think when you really look at that, and I'm not sure that, that that's really known, I guess the bottom line, uh, I only know of one study where they felt, at least in those group of horses, that it might be more prevalent in gildings. But then you have to look at, at the population of horses, where there are more gildings tested you know, compared to mares or that sort of thing. So I'm not aware of, of anything to where anybody said it's more prevalent in gildings or mares or, or stallions. To, to, to be honest, Dr. K, have you? No, anything I've never seen anything that really looked at big numbers and, and found much of a difference. Yeah. Um. Um, our next question is for Dr. K. It's from Lori in our live audience, and uh, Alex, our uh, editor, who's helping with everyone's questions as they're coming in, has said that she's received several questions on this topic. So, mm -hmm. Dr. K. Does a natural avenue such as chasberry or chastree berry work for a horse with Cushing? So I know we, we addressed supplements a little bit earlier, yeah, but specifically yeah. the cha chastree um, well, berry. Well, the chasberry um, has only, as far as I know, been really looked at critically one time. That was a lot of years ago. Um, at that time, it did not seem to help at all. Um, it didn't change the horse's. Um, values. So, um, to my knowledge, there's still not a study that shows that Chase Berry um, does any of the effects that one would like it to. Um, so that, um, again, horses that um, you know, if you pay careful attention to their diet overall, uh, they'll probably do better than if you throw them a little hay and grain every day and walk away. Um, but when people specifically look at these other supplements, um, nutraceuticals, things of that nature, so far nothing has really helped with their um, the secretion of the hormones from the pituitary um, at, you know, up to this point. So for those who are looking for ways to manage the horses, uh, maybe in addition to medication. What management recommendations do you make for them? Do these horses need more exercise? Um, are there specific diet uh, recommendations um, that you make? Do they work with a nutritionist? Well, that again, the, like the first thing I would do is, is make see where their insulin is. Um, you, 
um, often these guys ha have um, one of the side effects of the PPID is the muscleine isn't as good. They get um, so you'd certainly want to feed a um, palatable diet, one that the horse wants to eat, that is balanced for protein and, and the right amino acids. Um, and again, if there's any question about insulin or if the horse is over-conditioned, um, have um, put some attention into getting some weight loss um, and having a low-carbohydrate diet. Um, if the horse doesn't have insulin problems, then again, just um, a diet that um, keeps the horse in a good condition. Um, and that is really as individual as, as there are horses. Some horses, even with PPID, um, can be easy keepers, but many older horses, PPD or not, you know, start to kind of lose condition. And, and so, you know, usually the senior type diets is where people go. So for an athletic horse, does a diagnosis indicate the end of their their career? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, certainly we see horses show horses in that. Um, and I mean, one of the things I know, I, I tell people that um, if you're, what you're feeding a horse or, you know, how you're managing a horse is, is working well for you and the horse, the horse is in good condition and, and has energy and all that, there really isn't a magic age when you should flip them over to senior fees. Like if what you're doing is working, then there's no reason not to keep with it. Um, there are horses that um, compete at older ages with the disease and they do very well. So um, it is very individual. Um, our next question is for you, uh, Dr. K, and it's from Val in Georgetown, Kentucky. And Val has a horse that was just diagnosed with PPID. Uh, she said that the temps in the area have been over 90 degrees and that his respiration rate has been over 100. She said, is this usual with PPID? Well, if they have a long hair coat and are sweating a lot, um, now that long hair coat prevents them from really cooling themselves off the way they should through sweating. And so I guess I would, if that's the case, I would certainly recommend that the horse be clipped and see if that doesn't make it a lot more comfortable. Um, if the horse is not sweating at all, then I'd be very worried about a condition called anhydrosis, which is basically horses don't sweat the way they're supposed to, so they have to almost pant to cool themselves off. And that um, sometimes can be something that um, is seen along with PPID. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, really high respiratory rate is not, again, a super common sign of PPID. So if a body clip doesn't pretty much um, take care of it, I would certainly have her, you know, have her vet out to take a look and see if there's not some other uh, pulmonary problem or anhydrosis or something like that going on. Our next question is from our live audience for Dr. Grubbs. Ruth wants to know if there's any way to reverse advanced PPID. Okay. Trying to understand exactly reverse. I think what we what we look at, at trying to do with these horses, you know, whether earlier or whether advanced, and I think that when we get into the advanced, you know, we want to to look at the the quality of life of these horses, and I think that's where we're, where we're going, you know, with those. Are we going to cure it? Uh, no, okay, we're not. Are we wanting to control those clinical signs, decrease those clinical signs, and look at the increasing the, 
that horse's quality of life? And I think the answer to that is yes, and that's what we're looking, you know, to do with treatment and then management. And it's like I said, with um, you know, with the diagnosis and then treating these horses and then you know, following those pretty closely because a lot of times you can follow them closely up front and start to get the correct dosage in this horse, and then and then over time for those. So. Uh, Reverse it. I'm not sure if you're thinking of curing it. Probably no, but controlling it and and improving those signs. Yeah, that's the goal, and that's that's what we would expect to do. Okay. Dr. Kerr, next question is for for you. Shar uh, in Wisconsin wants to know if you should vaccinate a Cushing's horse that's 30 years old. What recommendations do you have for vaccinating these guys? Um, so my recommendations for vaccination are. We rec I, I would recommend that the horse get at least what the American Association of Equine Practitioners has said is their core vaccines, which are the vaccines that every horse should get. Um, and that um, those are diseases such as tetanus that any horse anywhere can get, um, and the viruses that they get from mosquitoes, that sort of thing. After that, it really depends on the horse's um, use. That, um, and that's really a decision you make about any horse, not just PPID horses, um, in that, you know, horses that are shown a lot, that are out and about a lot, you think more of the viral diseases, the respiratory diseases, and horses that are going to be in your paddock and not see a lot of, you know, new horses probably don't really require those. Um, but horses with PPID, they don't have the immune system, maybe of a normal horse, but they do um, they do mount antibody responses to vaccines, and definitely um, would recommend that they continue to get the core vaccines that are recommended. And yeah, Dr. Oh, go yeah. One other thing is just to kind of add to to Dr. K, and you know, absolutely. And there was one thing that uh, I think we'll all kind of want to look for and look for in the kind of the near future. Uh, uh, one of the researchers, and I'll just go ahead and say her name so you can kind of look when this starts to come out. Her name is Dr. Amanda Adams at University of Kentucky has actually looked at just this about vaccinating these horses uh, with PPID, whether they be, she kind of divided them out to whether they were um, maybe early kind of or I would say early disease versus you know the advanced disease, and and she did some things to to kind of quantify that, and um, you know kind of that was just exactly what Dr. K had said. She, you know what she stated, or Dr. Adams stated in that was, you know some of these horses with advanced disease that you know her recommendation is you know just exactly that is look at these mosquito born diseases that are out there, uh, the core vaccines, that sort of thing, because there did seem to, they, they do respond, but um, maybe to age match controls, uh, you know, maybe not as well. So you definitely want to, uh, you know, to vaccinate these horses. Okay. And I think we have time for one more question, and it's along the lines of, of the vaccination question. Um, but uh, Dr. K, I'm going to give this one to you. Leslie in New York wants to know if horses with Cushing's can still receive uh, things like Adequan, Butte, or joint injections. Are there any concerns um, with other treatments for maybe arthritis? Um, no, not at all. Um, again, you know, horses with 
um, PPID tend to be older. They tend to be um, have the problems that other horses have, and so um, usually um, if they require that kind of treatment to stay comfortable, then there's no reason not to do it. Um, some horses even need to get corticosteroids, despite the fact that their own pituitary is maybe making too many too. Um, so yeah, there's really um, no reason not to go ahead and treat them for other diseases they might have. So we're just about out of time, but I want to ask each of you before we go if you have uh, any kind of final thoughts on the conversation tonight and what you would like our audience to, to take away from our discussion. And let's go ahead and start with you, Dr. Grubbs. Oh, okay. Uh, I think probably to reiterate some of the things that some of the important points Dr. K brought out and uh, but we talk about diagnostics. I think one is awareness and uh, it seems like with these questions there's a lot of awareness and, and there's a lot of you know of interest and you know one thing about the diagnosis and you know understanding that in the clinical signs for early versus advanced and uh, it looks like you know a lot of owners are actually looking for this at an earlier time uh, instead of this you know woolly mammoth so when we do diagnose look at the or when we do testing, look at the you know look at the whole horse in in you know in some way and and treat that whole horse, not just throwing percent or pergolide at these horses, but look at everything with them. But also look at insulin and glucose. So if you need to manage that diet, you know go ahead and do that. Don't just take care of one part of the problem if they have insulin issues. Because like Dr. K had stated, you know a lot of these PPID horses, you know may have uh, some insulin issues. So we kind of want to manage, you know, the whole horse and not just one part of it. So, uh, really appreciate being on here and, and uh, really enjoyed this. And uh, Dr. K, your final thoughts? Um, I guess my my final thought again. Thank you for for having me. Um, is one of the things that we kind of touched on, but I want to maybe go back and reemphasize is that um, the hormones that horses have in the autumn is different. It's higher than they have other times of the year and so when you're thinking about PPID in your horse you have to bear in mind what time of the year it is um, in which it's probably the only disease out there that's like that um, so it's very important to think um, if I you know that you and your veterinarian discuss what time of year to test and the pluses and minuses of doing it in the fall versus doing it other times of the year so definitely on on our minds right now. Um, yeah. As as the we're on the the first or second day of fall, and um, I want to thank both of you for joining us, doctors. It was a really great conversation. I hope that everyone listened has taken away some information that's going to help their horses. I, I also want to thank our sponsor. Uh, Beringer, Ingelheim Vet Medica, for bringing this event to everyone for free tonight. If you're listening and you have additional questions, I want to refer you back again to that resource article that we have online. It's at thehorse.com slash 33452, uh, those 10 top resources that our editors have selected uh, that, that might be able to help your horse. So we hope you can join us again next uh, month for Ask the Horse Live and for everyone who joined us, uh, thank you again and until we see you again, we're wishing you a good night and happy riding. <laughs>